Good morning. The scripture, scripture passage this morning is Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 18. You can find that on page 934 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. Proverbs 3, 1 through 18. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves, as a father, the son he delights in. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies, nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, Those who hold her fast will be blessed. Thanks, Becca. Nicole is too modest to say so, but she wrote that song this week. And um, it's been really neat to see some of our worship leaders writing stuff for us and for what we're studying. So in 2008, Christopher, Christopher Ratt and his seven-year-old son were, attempt, were attending a Detroit Tigers game together. It's baseball, for those of you not sure about that. When Ratt went to the concession stand, he grabbed a beer for himself and a, hard, a Mike's Hard Lemonade for his son, unaware that the drink contained 5% alcohol. When a security guard saw Ratt's son nursing the bottle of the spiked beverage, he immediately took it from him and then rushed the boy to the stadium's medical clinic. The medical clinic called an ambulance and the boy was sent to an emergency room. The doctors at the ER found no trace of alcohol in his system and were ready to release the boy to his father. But the police had other plans. According to procedure, the police were required to turn the child over to the county's Child Protective Services. Many of the officers hated the fact they had to do it, but rules were rules. County officials put the boy into into a foster home for three days, even though the case agent didn't feel it was the right thing to do, but they had to follow procedures. A judge then ruled that the boy could be released from foster care into his mother's custody so long as Rat moved out of the house. Again, the judge was just following the rules and procedures. After a long two weeks, dad and son were finally reunited. The police, county workers, even the judge all agreed that the family had went through something that was a miscarriage of justice due to the dad's honest mistake, but their hands were tied. Now, I I'm, I'm, can't be sure about your response to that, but like, I have an eight-year-old son, and that story just makes me mad. Like, llama spitting mad. And the, the, re, the reason for that is that, one— 
That whole, we were just following procedures is a bunch of lies, first of all. Um, they actually found, because this family then sued Michigan, and, and the judge, actually, um, she, the, the, one of the judges, um, the judge that had signed the child removal order had signed a blank form a month earlier. She didn't apparently want to take the time to actually look over every child removal case, so she just trusted the social worker and was pre-signing blank child removal forms which is not supposed to happen, in case you're wondering about how bureaucracies are supposed to work. The signature comes at the end of the process, right? And legally, you're supposed to release a child to the innocent mother who was not at the event. He had two aunts who both said they'd take the kid. One of them was an approved foster parent. But we're just following the rules, man. Everybody has a response when they encounter tyranny, legal absurdity, and corruption. Everybody has that response. And the reason why that response is like, or anger or whatever, is because human beings have an internal sense of a desire for liberty. That there's a certain extent to which we can take care of ourselves— we should be left alone. It is our right and our responsibility to seek out what's best for us and for those closest to us. And there are certain things that are just not in other—you're just not in my sphere. I have a sphere that is sovereign against you, and you can't enter it unless I invite you. And it happens voluntarily. That's why we have things like trade and families and civil societies and stuff like that, and government is everything. However— one of the things that we also long for as human beings is a just peace. And so um, I'm not sure that the libertarians or the libertines are right that this would be solved if we got rid of all these ridiculous rules upon rules upon rules upon rules upon rules and just made everybody totally libertine-free, that that would produce the thing we long for, which is liberty in the presence of a just peace. In fact, the Bible has said for more than 3,000 years now, both explicitly and implicitly demonstrated and didacted, that that is not what produces free, peaceful justice. It's just no human society, through the attenuation of rules or by through, you know, libertine expressivism, has ever achieved that and certainly not for more than a generation. And yet, a fairly simple contrast to this would be to ask this question. Where is the only place in the universe that has humans, has a just peace, has freedom and liberty, and has no need of rules or laws? You could ask the same basic question this way. What is the place we think has the most rules, but in reality is the only place that needs none. What is heaven? Heaven is that place. Heaven is the place that has the right to have every rule, and yet requires zero rules. Because it has been the point of Christ since the beginning to create a group of creatures that were capable of living with the kind of freedom that any creature that bears the image of God should live with, 
and to produce in the organization of those creatures a just peace. Galatians 5, 13, 4, he says, My brothers, you were called to be free, meaning when you were called to believe in Jesus and become Christians, you were called to be free. That is, the end of what the gospel is meant to produce in human beings is freedom. But then he says this, But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. That is, in your freedom from tyrannical, absurd, corruptive, rule-mongering legalism— do not leave that to slip into libertinism, right? But rather, do not indulge in sinful nature, but rather serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? The New Testament calls this life in the Spirit. That life in the Spirit recognizes what indulging the sinful nature is and rejects it. And life in the Spirit recognizes what loving our neighbor and loving God is and accepts it and embraces it and then applies it. And any creature who understands what sinful indulgence is and understands what loving our neighbor and our God is and simply applies those things with consistency and discipline needs no external governance. External governance is only necessary in the absence of consistent self-governance. And to that extent— the more any people or person fails to govern themselves, the more they need external governments. That's why there's prisons, which is extreme self-governance for those with an extreme inability to govern themselves, and governments at varying levels of over-governance for varying levels of failures of self-governance, and also because of people not governing themselves who are in power. There's lots of reasons, right? Now, A Christian author, Oskinus, who is, who is, um, who lives in Washington, um, and started something called the Trinity Forum, wrote a book some time ago called A Free People's Suicide, and he said that if, if most of us came out of high school and we were asked, in what way did the founding fathers of America try to create a perpetual society? They had just won liberty, and they wanted a good and just society, and so they asked the question, how does the people live in both justice and, but mainly sustain their liberty? He said most people who've been through high school would answer separation of powers, affirmation of rights, right? You separate powers in the government between states, and you get a separation of powers, so it's harder to accumulate tyrannical authority. And secondly, you affirm a set of rights that any authority can never contradict, so that rights are affirmed and tyranny is hard to create, and so therefore you have the perpetuation of liberty. But Guinness said, he said that's actually not the first layer of that. That before is a much more basic understanding of human society and human nature and the very nature of freedom itself. And he said, you can read, you can read all the founding fathers, religious and irreligious, and they all affirmed a basic interconnected triangle, what Guinness calls the golden triangle, that produces real freedom among human beings. And he said, it, it requires these three things. It requires faith of some kind, which in the Founding Fathers meant different denominations of Christianity mainly, is what that meant to them. So Baptists and Episcopalians, it's fine to let them be Baptists and Episcopalians, 
so long as they believed in something that affirmed the dictates of virtue in a way beyond self-reference. In fact, John Adams said one time, I think he was writing in Jefferson, but I can't remember right now. He said, I know that there are many men in our experience that have said in their irreligiosity that they need no religion to be good. He said, I have found in my intercourse with them for them all to be plainly scoundrels. (laughs) Philosophically, I mean, we could sit around and have coffee about whether or not atheists can be good. From a Christian's perspective, the answer is no, because all human beings must rightly give praise that is deserved to the God who is there. And by definition, an atheist can't do that. And so in the holistic sense, that's not true. Can Bill be as good as Sam in the general sense of how people treat each other with civility? The answer could be yes. But the the issue is, is that that's kind of immaterial. What the Founding Fathers recognized was there has never been any society ever that among the mass of people, that a whole society of people were drawn to virtue, all individually and together, in a, in a fabric of society without a larger authority that stated what was good, made it obligatory on people, and threatened its disobedience and prayed its adherence. They, all of them to a man believed that faith in something was necessary because it upheld virtue. And virtue was the only thing that could uphold liberty. That's the connection that's so important to make today, because this is what the Bible has taught for millennia, that there's actually no political ideology that can make for liberty, nor for justice, nor for peace. Only virtue, duly shared, ever revived, always fought for, ever needful, its purveyors and lovers ever watchful. Human virtue, self-governance, is the only thing that has ever provided the opportunity for self-governance, for liberty. And yet, as virtue is necessary for liberty, so liberty must exist for there to be faith, because faith has to be free. It cannot be coerced, and whenever you coerce faith, you tend to destroy it and its institutions. A lot of people believe that the reason why almost no one goes to church in Europe is because Europe is more secular than America. That's not really true. The reason nobody goes to church in Europe is because Europe had mostly only state churches, and state churches stink, and so nobody goes to them. Nobody, nobody personally gives directly to a church in order to support its ministry, and therefore directly complains when that church is doing crappy ministry, and then gets up and leaves and goes to another better church because the church down the road is actually better. It's only actually in the, well, I'd say free market of churches, but the freedom that churches had in America that, uh, that forces them to constantly be reviving themselves. Because the state isn't going to pay for them. If people don't voluntarily come together to make a vibrant church, it's just not going to happen. And it's never been otherwise for us. And that has been very good for us. And it's why something like 40% of America every Sunday goes to church. And about 2% or less of Europe does. And it has nothing to do with that, you know, Nietzsche lived there. And so these three things feed upon each other. Faith leads to virtue, virtue to liberty— liberty to faith, and so on. And what's actually true of all peoples is actually true of all persons. That golden triangle is actually true for us. You and I cannot be the sort of creature that can bear our own liberty 
and freedoms. The decisions we're supposed to make for ourselves, the responsibilities that we're supposed to take on to ourselves, the support that we're to give to others, the part we play in the corporate just peace, we cannot fulfill what we were meant to fulfill in bearing the divine image in a redemptive way without profound growth, development, and strength of virtue. And that virtue is meant to be dictated, supported, affirmed, constructed by faith. Faith leads to virtue, and virtue to the capacity to bear liberty. In the responsibilities of liberty, we have to live in the discipline and trust and faith and wisdom in order to bear that liberty, which leads to the growth of our faith. Our faith builds deeper virtue, which makes us more capable of bearing our liberty better, and so on. In fact, Not only does having the ends that we want matter, but wisdom has its own golden triangle. The, the reason why I talked about liberty is just simply this. If I say, hey guys, man, we're going to talk about how awesome virtue is and how we're all going to pursue it with everything that we are. I mean, it just feels a little, I mean, it just feels a little bit like me trying to get this room excited about the, the Chicago Bears, you know? Or like, okay, listen, we're going to all, for like a year, we're all going to eat this 17 grain bread where you have to floss after you eat it at every time we eat. Right? It's all, only all natural peanut butters. You can't have Skippy anymore. Like, basically, I mean, it's, it's this, virtue is the sort of thing that everybody pays lift service to, everybody wants to define differently, and everybody hopes there's an alternative to. And yet, what the Bible says literally from beginning to end is that there is nothing, there never can be, there never will be, there never was, any substitute in human life for virtue. And anything that we seek to substitute its effects will always have terrible, negative, unintended consequences that we will deserve. Virtue has no negative consequences. Everything else does. Policing does government agencies do. All of them have negative consequences. They all have to. Because they all deal with a human problem. Now, in order to have the things that we long for, freedom, liberty, peace, justice, therefore virtue must exist, ever-growing and ever-renewed by faith. And so the the book of wisdom, uh, the Proverbs and the Bible— has its own golden triangle, and they're all in verse, chapter 1, verse 7, right? It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. So you could summarize it, the whole book of Proverbs this way, and in some ways, the, all of the wisdom of the Bible. Virtue, which is not all the Bible is about, is one part of salvation. Virtue comes from faith-filled wisdom disciplined into character. Faith-filled wisdom disciplined in the character. So we're just going to look at this golden triangle. The, the, the first thing is faith in the self-revealing God. Wisdom can be defined something like this. Wisdom is God-centered knowledge of his character, creation, providence, and word. That is, 
wisdom is interested in secular things. Wisdom is interested in everything that's secular because wisdom is interested in everything. Everything is from God and everything relates to God, and therefore God is interested in all forms of science and music and fashion and all of these things matter. And so wisdom is interested in every secular thing, but it isn't secular. Wisdom is about how the reality that exists, which includes God as its great definer, interrelates to itself and functions, and therefore how best must we function in it. And therefore, the argument that the Bible gives is therefore the knowledge of God, knowing that he is there, knowing something about his character, knowing something about his creation, and then on the basis of that, knowing something about our nature is necessary. One of the reasons why that's so important is because we don't just suffer as a society from a weakness in our knowledge of God. Basically, as much as we suffer from a weakness in our knowledge of God, we suffer from, in some ways, an even worse misunderstanding of human nature. In some ways, our society just sort of ignores God. But with human nature, we have actually interposed the opposite view. And, and, and here's why this is totally natural. A hundred or two thousand years ago, people didn't have screens. And so the people that they watched and the lives that they observed and evaluated were the lives of real humans. And so they observed those humans' real behaviors, and then they observed the fruit and end of those humans' real behaviors, and they learned about humans, right? Now what we do is we turn on screens, and those screens have imaginary stories about imaginary humans— that have no human nature dictated by humans, but have natures made up by the people who imagine them and write them into existence. And those people function in alternate realities that function completely different than ours. And so we learn about human beings implicitly by watching imaginary human beings that have an imagined nature function in a world that has an imagined structure that functions the way all of our most visceral desires wished it functions rather than how reality actually functions. And when we form ourselves to believe in that worldview by watching hours and 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 that was, that was one minute, okay? How many hours did God have to watch you watch TV this week? And it's not that I don't like your show. It's not that I don't like your show. I, I, like, I like a good magic trick as, as good as the next person. I just don't want to watch magic shows enough that I come to naturally believe by watching them that they are teaching me reality. And when we go to 27 hours of magic shows a week, we start thinking that you can make canaries disappear. And you can't. They kill the canary that's in the cage, and they pull another one out of their pocket. And it's a canary because all canaries look the same. Sorry if I ruined your profession. 
faith or occupation. And so, because of that, it's so important that we realize that real wisdom, the wisdom that Christ wants to set you free with, starts with God. And it starts with God telling us we are wrong about God and about ourselves. Wisdom is in many ways us getting re-educated about the world out of our, how we have self-interestedly and self-delusionally and self-focusedly interpreted the world foolishly. And so most of wisdom's dictates are counterintuitive. We're like, that can't possibly be right. Or we go, oh, stink, that is right. I've, I've learned that one the hard way. But it has to start with God offending us. And I know that it's fashionable for people to say that religion closes minds. I know that that's so chic. And so now, it's like a V down to here on your t-shirt, you know? Um, but, but all that's happening there, because that sounds truthy, right? Because basically, all, none of us like to be in cognitive distance. We don't like people to tell us the world is other than we think it is, because it creates all these tension feelings inside of us and make us feel nervous like we're not situated in the world right. It's like a, it's a you know, it's a problem. It feels— Ugh, icky, right? And so we take our, like, some kind of ideology, and we, we make little brain shields out of it, and so we can shield ourselves with something so that we don't have to feel that. There's nothing particular about religious faith about that. That is just a human, visceral, instinctual desire to feel like we're fine, and to not feel like we have to change, and to feel like we understand our world and that we're okay. There's nothing more guts about that. And it doesn't matter one bit of difference whether you are using ideas about God or you are using ideas about hamsters to do that. And although you can believe in God in such a way as to engage in negative self-defense that makes you closed-minded, there's almost nothing that makes people as closed-minded as believing in themselves. I mean, another truthy statement. If by believe in myself, I mean I have inherent dignity and I have a right to be here and I'm going to try stuff and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step out into the world with courage, then God bless you. That is exactly what believe in yourself is supposed to mean. But listen, believe in yourself is like the yellow brick road or the road through Mirkwood. Man, you get one step off that thing and you are lost forever and the wicked witch gets you. I mean, you just mean anything different. Like, I believe in what I think about myself. I believe in how I see the world. I believe in my—I believe in myself. I believe that nobody should be able to correct me. I believe that all my intuitive thoughts about things must be right. I believe that everybody should affirm everything I do. I believe in myself. I mean, I believe in myself can mean so many ridiculous things and does. That <clears throat> the idea of it— is a ends up always being a rejection of wisdom. Believing in yourself means recognizing you're made in the divine image, and you are called to be a certain kind of creature, and you are that thing, and nobody can tell you that you're not, and, it, and you must step out into the world with temperance and courage to do what is good, right, true, and beautiful. That's what it means, and it means virtually nothing else without becoming poison. 
And that's why we need God to say, listen to me. And why wisdom and virtue must start with faith. Now, once we start with faith and trusting in God and listening, there's a process of learning that is an active, lifelong, intense learning process. There is no paragraph that I can tell you that you can sign off on that like makes your life make sense from here till the end. There, if I say, look, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved, and you go, okay, I believe in Jesus. If I say, I'll go, absolutely. And you can still make a total shipwreck of your life and lose that faith in Jesus and get nothing for it. I mean, wisdom is taking essentially— well, some of these verses I, I read last week, but the, the attitude of Proverbs is constantly, wisdom is worth everything. Wisdom is supreme, right? They'll cost you all you have, get understanding. Esteem her and she will exalt you. How much better to get wisdom than gold, to choose understanding rather than silver. Buy truth and do not sell it. Gain wisdom, discipline, and understanding. The father of a righteous man has great joy. Who, he who has a wise son delights in him. The Bible is full of this affirmation that, yes, there is a minimum saving truth that anybody can believe in, that a five-year-old can believe in and be saved, that somebody who has mental disabilities can believe in and be saved, that someone at any point in their life can believe in and receive God's forgiveness. But there is God—salvation is holistic. It means redemption in all ways. And forgiveness is one part of that redemption. And transformation and becoming the creature we were created to be is another part of that salvation. And wisdom and learning it over the course of a lifetime is incredibly important. It is not—it's not— it's not an elective. It's not something you do if you want. It's not something you do if you like the flavor of. It's not something you do if you're heady. It is something that we all do. And when I say it's the, the seeking of a lifetime, I'm not saying that it like evenly grows as, as you grow. You can learn the bulk of biblical wisdom in a fairly short period of time. And you'll be working it out a little bit more as time goes on and get better applications. But the general body of biblical wisdom is, does not take forever to master. But most of us sell ourselves incredibly short of this process of taking the heart of the gospel and learning how it relates to everything in life, working it out to the capillaries of existence. Friends, one of the things that happened when we started taking on a totally different understanding of human nature was we began to believe that the most important human thing about human beings was not what they were becoming constructively, but what they were putting out expressively, right? Philosophers call it expressivism, right? What's really most important is what comes out of me, how I express myself, and the, quote, authenticity of that. But that's actually a really foolish idea when we start thinking about it. Because what it ends up doing is limiting human beings to a very small percentage of their potential. Because we are developing creatures. Just go to the nursery and look at the little things in there, okay? I mean, I was, I, I was, I was talking to like a three-month-old kid between the services, and he's just going like this, like can't work his arms. He, I mean, it's like a teenager like swerving down the road. I mean, he's just kind of like, he, I, was just, I was watching him trying to work his face. I was like, man, I got that down. <laughs> right? And 
human beings are constructive developmental creatures. I mean, think about it. We are the creature on earth that takes the longest to grow up. You should name another creature on planet earth that lives at home for 30 years, 18 years. <laughs> there isn't one, right? Like, I mean, like the, like the longest maturation process is like a couple years, right? Most of it is like they lay the eggs and they just swim away. Which sounds good to some of us parents, right? We are constructive creatures. You aren't who you were meant to be. We are always becoming. We have, we have, and, and what that produces, expressivism, is we have no idea what we're capable of. And one of the main ways we don't know what we're capable of is mentally. Um, our inability to think well actually is a discipline issue, not an intelligence limitation. I cannot tell you how many times in a month I will think about something for like nine seconds and say something about it, and somebody will say to me, intending for this to be a compliment, I've never thought that deep about that in my life. And I just think, why? As though what I had done was this, ex like, this, like, ivory tower experiment of like, of thinking that goes way beyond what any human would do. No. No, no. A normal human being can learn to read 30 or 40 pages in a row. A normal human being can learn to have a conversation where they listen for half of it and can repeat most of what the other person said very easily. A normal human being can memorize an enormous amount of information of average intelligence. A normal human being can do calculus. A normal human being can think incredibly profound philosophical thoughts. In, um, in Boston, during the Puritan age, there were numerous reports of people going into the cobbler's shop. Okay? So cobblers are not known for being like the highest level of education. Most people don't get PhDs so that they can be cobblers. It's just not what they do. And yet, during the revival, when faith was becoming enlivened, and virtue was growing, and people realized, learning, people walked in and noticed that he's like, I, there was a, there's one guy, he's, I went to the cobbler shop today and found Mr. Anderson reading his Greek Testament while fixing Mr. Norman's shoes. Literacy rate was north of 95%. The public schools were started like 75 years later, and they've never gotten close since in Boston. Because here's the thing. I know so many people that when they became Christians, I know it's fashionable for people out there to say, you, you become religious and you, you like check your brain at the door and you just become dumber. That has not been my experience at all. I cannot tell you how many Christians that I know that when they became Christians, they then thirsted for the knowledge of God and how the knowledge of God related to all things, and they became incredible learners and readers and thinkers and deliberators. That's what happened to me. I didn't—I I majored in girls and sports in school until Jesus got a hold of me. And then I was like, oh— Everything in the entire world is interesting now. You 
can become that person. You can think, you can read, you can learn, you can master wisdom. You can be wise. You can be so wise that you can be working a $10 an hour job doing data entry and people will come to your cubicle to hear your oracles. I remember when I was in college, I read the book of Proverbs. I read a chapter a day. I was 19. And there were people from all over my floor coming in my room to ask for advice. And I was like, what? Why are you talking to me? Who are you? Are you high right now? What the— What is going on here? And they weren't Christians by any stretch of the imagination, but like they just would ask my advice about things for their life. So there's the learning process. There's faith, trusting God. There's a learning process. It's going through the process of everything in the world on the basis of what God teaches and say, do I receive this? Do I redeem it? Do I have to change it in order to receive it? Or do I reject it because it's not— gospel and working through and theologically integrating and growing in wisdom and all these things. And then the last thing is habituating virtue into character through discipline. That is, when you know what's wise and you know what wisdom says, are you going to be fighting everything about your embodiedness to do it? Or is your embodiedness through habit going to be on your side? That's the question. Because you are not a strong enough being to have an entirely unhabituated embodied being, your mind, your heart, and your body, and for you to have a kernel of faith and say, oh, I should do this and really do it. That's not how life works. It can't work that way. God created the world to work a certain way, and that's not the way it works. To do that is to believe that you can stand on like a big sheet of plastic with baby oil squirted all over it, and you can walk in this direction while somebody else is, has a rope around your waist and is pulling you in that direction, standing on asphalt. It's not, it's not going to work. You can have every desire, and you can run so fast, and you're still going that way. The only way wisdom as teaching becomes wisdom that is holistic virtue, is by the personal, self-disciplining inculcation of habit in discipline. The undisciplined life delivers on nothing. And there's no spiritual way around that. There is the fact that Jesus has brought you to God, where you can receive this wisdom through his death and resurrection. The Holy Spirit will indwell you if you come to Jesus. And if you've come to Jesus, the Holy Spirit has indwelled you. The Holy Spirit can regenerate you spiritually as a being and a person so that you have your new creation and you have the capacity for these things. There are so many allied and resources that God gives you in order to be a person of divine gospel-centered virtue. But he doesn't just plug in virtue. Virtue is developmental, and it is only one through discipline. You can go through the the whole book of Proverbs and just verse after verse after verse after verse after verse of this. And oftentimes wisdom and discipline are parallel to each other because though they're not exactly the same thing, they are indivisible. You can sit at the feet of some guru for your whole life, and if you don't go out and discipline yourself to do those things, you're never going to be able to do them. 
And so, um, one of the questions that somebody asked me about this is, so what is that discipline? What is that training? Right? And so let me tell you three things. One, it is, okay, I want you to open your mind to this, okay? Don't, you have your shields up, but still listen, okay? Being open to receiving correction. You see, it's already offending the, like, I believe in myself shields up, right? Um, that is itself a discipline and a way of being disciplined. When somebody tells you you're not doing it right, that hurts. Especially if somebody tells you you haven't been doing it right for a while. <laughs> it hurts. And you have to discipline yourself to say, all right, I'm listening. Instead of like, who are you to talk to me? I don't have to listen to this. What are you self-righteous? Right? That's the natural response. And what you have to do is be like, oh, natural response. That is an indulgence in the sinful nature. And I'm not going to use my freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but in love, I'm going to listen to my neighbor who in love is trying to correct me. I don't mean people who are trying to like personally assassinate you and like destroy you personally. Ultimately, there is a level of Christian maturity where even your worst attackers, you will learn from it and you'll gain from what they do. That's a fairly advanced spiritual discipline. But like one of the things that people don't recognize, for example, take parenting, right? It's the one thing you're not allowed to give anybody advice on and the thing that most people need lots of advice on. Um, you can take a 12-year-old, right? I could take an, an average 12-year-old and I could have them watch my family and me interact with my family for an hour. And that 12-year-old will, will know what I'm doing wrong with my kids. No training. They don't have to be a psychologist or have read any parenting books. Just take a normal, decently intelligent 12-year-old. We take Timothy— Bring him to my house. How old are you, Timothy? Nine? Twenty-seven? Take Timothy to bring him to my house. He just watches me interact with my kids. And when I, and when, and I, and I sit down and say, okay, Timothy, I got my notebook out. You tell me what I'm doing wrong. I promise you he could tell me at least three things I'm doing wrong that he would be right, that I would enormously benefit from and my kids would benefit from if I would listen to him. Everybody around you knows what you're doing wrong as a parent. Everyone. It's so easy to see. And yet— we will not listen to anybody. And here's—and that—but that's not even the first. It's the first—the thing is not just listen to your—listen to people correct you. The first step of discipline is to invite people to correct you. Invite people to correct you. You just see the, the dumbfounded look on people's face. Like, I went we went camping with a couple families a while back. And so these three families were with our family for like three days. So I pulled the whole—six of them aside at the end of it. I said, okay— so you've been around my family for three days. You've watched me parent and interact with my wife. All right, give me some feedback. I need some honest feedback, right? And they, they were just kind of like, where's the camera? Who's got a gun? Like, they were terrified. You usually see the look of terror on their face. But I wanted so much. And a couple of them told me some things that were really painful and very helpful, right? So the one is inviting correction, is a discipline. Second is there are spiritual disciplines that you can do to grow in faith. Reading the Bible. Having like a quiet time, which is like reading the Bible and praying. Meditating on scripture, that is reading a scripture and like thinking through and kind of teasing out what it means. And not just giving yourself to like the first thing that pops into your head, but like, oh, yep, that's first. Okay, but what else? Right? Going to things where people get together to learn about Jesus going to a Bible study, small group, coming to church and actually listening, right? 
I know, listen, I'm a pastor, so I know what's going on in a lot of people's lives, and I watch people come in here, and I watch other people say exactly what they need to hear, and I watch them looking around while it's happening, and not opening themselves and preparing themselves to hear. Just the discipline of hearing, being a hearer, is a discipline, right? And so, so there's spiritual disciplines. There is receiving correction, inviting correction. And the third is this, obedience, right? I mean, if anybody, if you've ever coached, there's three parts necessary to any young athlete succeeding. One is they have to do drills, and you have to teach them how to play the game. So they need to learn the rules, they need to know how to play the game, and then they have to practice in a situation that is not the game, okay? Then they have to actually play the game, okay? And then it goes best when there's good coaching during both situations. Good coaching when they're doing drills and learning the game, and good coaching when they're playing the game, right? That is, spiritual disciplines are not, when, are not designed to win God's favor. Reading the Bible, fasting, praying, journaling, going to Bible study, going to church, worshiping, singing worship songs, writing worship songs— Whatever you would do to try to grow in faith, those are not, those are not done to earn God's favor. Those, are, those simply are preparing you to live as a Christian when you walk out the door, okay? They're drills. And then you have to actually walk out into life and pull the trigger on obeying things Jesus says. And listen, you may be like, well, nigga, I'm not ready to be a martyr or something. Listen, I'm, I'm not talking about huge things. I'm talking about starting with things like being less snippy and snappy. Not giving yourself to gossip. Um, not that these are little things, but they seem like smaller things, right? Asking people to help you or tell you when you're doing something that's just kind of idiotic. Um, being more gracious with your speech and less negative with your speech. Fulfilling your right roles, duties, and responsibilities and, and doing it with a smile on your face. Serving people in little ways around you. Like, you, you just, you, you go, what you do is you go out in your life and you look for the little gut checks. The little gut checks. Somebody cuts me off and I'm not going to give myself to five minutes of anger and how I'd like to kill them and cussing in my car. You go, oh, I love you, but I don't understand you, right? <laughs> you, you have to go through these, and you have to— and as you—and listen, and that's why not gossiping is training for not committing adultery, okay? And if you don't see that connection, you don't understand how human beings become themselves. It is all the little things that build the strength and build the fortitude and build the temperance and build the courage and build the self-discipline to pull the trigger on increasingly more difficult things. And as you do it, you build a, a momentum of habit. So when folly says, come and love me, you have habit on your side. That your systems of thinkings, your systems of how you feel, the impulses of your body, how you naturally react, becomes more on your side than against it. Virtue can only come when you add discipline to learning wisdom and believing God. 
But when those three things come together, when any person dares to believe Jesus in such a way as to trust him, to let Jesus teach him, and then to let Jesus lead them into real obedience, when those three things come together, it is unbelievable the transformation that happens in people, transformation that you do not believe is possible, either for yourself or for other people, even for the people you've given up on, even if that person is you. None of this is about performance. This isn't a place of performance. You don't have to perform for me. I don't have to perform for you. Jesus has already been wiser than Solomon on your behalf. This isn't about your performance of wisdom. It isn't about are you wise enough to get into heaven or are you wise enough? It has nothing to do with any of that. Jesus has been perfectly wise on your behalf, performed it perfectly for you and died in your place. What this is about is becoming true humanity like Jesus when he saves, regenerates, and frees you to become a citizen of heaven. A citizen of heaven is not just someone who's been forgiven. A citizen of heaven is somebody who is seeking now to become the kind of person that could be placed in a city where there need be no rules, not one, and you could be a full participant in the presence of absolute liberty, which only produces loving, just peace and probably oceans of laughter, fun, and enjoyment. In some ways, you could sum up all of Christianity that way. Jesus has saved us and given us a citizenship in heaven and has called us as much as possible now to become right citizens of heaven the way those citizens should be. And he's empowered us with his spirit. He's empowered us with his authority. He's made us free from sin. He's regenerated our spirits. He's called us forward. He's given us wisdom. He's created a church. He's done all these things to create a space in which we could become not just declared citizens of heaven, but could come to mirror and be a citizen of heaven. And then as the church show the world that it is possible to have a people who live in liberty and who produce love, laughter, faithful justice, and peace in their midst without the need for oppressive rule and who don't use their freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but who, who embody every right law by living out the central statements of the God who they fear and honor, that they love their neighbor as themselves, and they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That pursuit is one that we do by believing Jesus, being taught by Jesus, and f by following Jesus. It's not meant to for you to be like, oh, like I'm going to work a lot harder. No, it's not. You start by believing Jesus, faith, and then you allow yourself to be taught by Jesus, wisdom, and then you go out in the normal realities of life into receiving correction, doing the spiritual disciplines, and obedience so that you could be led by Jesus. 
It is a del- it's a deliberate process, but it is a simple process. And for every ounce of effort you give, you will find a pound of being carried along. Because you were actually created as a human being to be virtuous. It may seem impossible now. I can't tell you how many people think that the most basic virtues are literally impossible for human beings. They're not. They just feel impossible right now, but they're not. There is literally a heroic, courage-filled life of profound wisdom that you have been not just called to, but made for, that you are suited for, that you are, with Christ's power, capable of, that is not up in the heavens that you can't reach it, but has been given through a self-revealing and self-sacrificing God for you, that has made it in a way in which we're all to be the same and can help each other reach a single goal together, all individually, in the midst of all of our diversity. That can be the greatest pursuit of our life. And that we could know in the whole thing, we're just believing Jesus, learning from Jesus, and following Jesus. Will you start by believing? Will you add to that? Entering environments of learning? And then will you endeavor to walk with others as you step out in training and in obeying? Starting with the little battles you can win and working up to the ones that are harder. Disciplining mind, emotions, body. And there is no step that you take in faith, not one, that Jesus has not rushed out before you and comes up as a mighty wind behind you. God, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us and spiritually help us to believe that you'd spiritually aid us in learning and spiritually aid us in obeying and giving ourselves to discipline. And I pray that you'd help us to win little battles that would be encouraging, that you'd help us to find loving guides who would be correcting, that you would help us when we open a Bible to see something in it, that you would illuminate it to us so that we could see the great worth that stands before us. If we would exercise our brains and look for it and fight through the laziness of our habituated weakness and help us to feel the strength rising in us as you begin to build in us what we were meant to be so that in faith we can grow in virtue and virtue we can be free as we were meant to be free and that we would be prepared to be citizens of heaven and that in all these things we would please you and Jesus' reputation would be seen as great. Amen.